welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. And we're not in a room, we're in two separate rooms. And I'm Michael. I'm and Ethan. I'm host. <laughs> and he's a guest. And I'm, I'm his guest, and I also yeah. don't have Scotch. <laughs> no, no Scotch, no room, just two rooms, and no uh, Scotch. Ugh, what a bad play. Yep. <laughs> because we're still doing a Shakespeare special, but it's kind of like part two of Shakespeare. Yeah, we're, we're doing um, Shakespeare Part 1 and Part 2, and that's all you ever need to know about Shakespeare, is right. these two hours of two, two, two podcast hosts talking about Shakespeare, when they're not to talking about Shakespeare their Shakespeare or not to Shakespeare. Really? Is that really <laughs> what you did just now? <laughs> Why don't you just go ahead and just, like, make a little paper football that represents me and flick it <laughs> off, a, off a tower? Wow, deep cut. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, seven <laughs> listeners. Right, right. Though granted, with the two of us, that's like seven out of our ten listeners, so... Yeah, it's true. But neither of the ones who actually pay us to make this show were at your performance of Hamlet at Bethany Lutheran College, as far as I know, anyway. Right, Maybe. but now you've given them all the information they need to search for it on YouTube and find that production. Yeah, I was going to say, is it? it is on YouTube, isn't it? It is 100% entirely nice. on YouTube. Nice. Yep. I did see it, I believe, four times when it was running live, so I have not felt the need to look it up on YouTube. Sure, sure. But I'm glad, I am glad it's there, so. Yeah, it's there. Cool. Integrity. Yeah. But we're not talking about Hamlet. Yeah, uh, uh, wait, are we not? No. We're not even uh, technically talking about The Tempest. No, not technically. We're technically, talking right now. Technically, we're talking about talking about the tempest. Exactly, we're talking about talking about the tempest. We're talking about poetry about the tempest. Or are we? That's or actually we? the first question I have for you. But maybe we should do the other things first. But I don't know. First, You're the host, first, so maybe yeah, so I should first not of all, dictate before, this. Before we get to that yes. all stuff, Ethan, what are you drinking? I am drinking something that is called Planter's Punch. Um, it is an old recipe of variations of which are found in many of like the, the old fashioned traditional tiki bars. It's a tiki mm -hmm. recipe that I drew from a book. I think it's the book called Intoxica, um, mm. which is by a man named Jeff Berry, whose nickname is Beach Bum. So you'll see him listed <laughs> as Jeff Beach Bum Berry. Um, he he uh, wrote some books, I want to say starting in the late 90s to early 2000s, and he's come out with books periodically since then, um, in which he went back to the Tiki Revival, or not the Tiki Revival, but the original flourishing of, of sort of the Tiki culture starting in like, I want to say the 1930s, and then going through to like post-World War II and into the 50s. Um, which it kind of died off after that, but it still remained alive in mm -hmm. pockets. Um, but a lot of, a lot of tiki drinks in after, especially the forties and fifties got kind of corrupted to where uh, they would be these very like, like fruit juicy type drinks, um, that were very easy drinking, but not very interesting or complex. Um, and so this man, Jeff Berry sort of did a lot of research about what original tiki drinks would have tasted like, and they were much more complex, much more like smoky and bitter in some ways, like a, mm. a much greater balance of flavors. Um, and he sort of brought a lot of those, those recipes up into the 21st century, um, including some that were like originally considered lost or at least 
buried very deeply uh the mm-hmm. the original tiki bars back when in the heyday of tiki they were very protective about some of their formulas so like he mm-hmm. had to do some real like digging to get some of these recipes um mm-hmm. so the planter's punch that i have it's it's a punch in an old-fashioned sort of sense in that it has uh, a a uh liquor element a sugar element a citrus element and a um it has bitters as well um so there's some fruit juices there's grapefruit and lime and a couple different types of rum in it and mm-hmm. even though it, it is very interesting there's there's sort of a smoky complex complexity to it it also is a very dangerous drink that will still uh, <laughs> wreck me if i'm not careful here so right right uh Good. that's that's what i'm drinking i'm drinking it in my tiki mug from i love it uh, which is from Psycho Susie's, which is a tiki bar in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, um, which is considered one of the like legit like old fashioned style tiki bars that remains. Cool. What are you drinking, Michael? Uh, I am drinking. I believe this is simply called the rum iced coffee cocktail. <laughs> okay. Because those are the two main ingredients. Sure. Iced coffee and rum. There's uh, a, a pinch of brown sugar and a little bit of cardamom in there, too. Okay. That's so. actually super interesting. Number one, I think a recipe very similar to that is in the book that I was just mentioning. Ah. So it's interesting that we're both sort of, we both sort of went rum word and uh well i mean after the last tiki. episode about the tempest <laughs> right I, I, like i had to go wrong. yeah yeah I, had I don't know if that was so. in the forefront of my mind but it was clearly at least in the uh uh the back front. yeah the back front which is a technical <laughs> i think that term comes out of carl jung the back front of the mind it's where <laughs> all the monsters live and also caliban and also the desire to drink rum yeah yeah makes sense yeah so, so the Gnostic part of your brain. Wait, getting ahead of us. Oh! Okay. Um, oh, so, interesting. Uh, because this is a um, special episode, there are no rules. Uh, so your wife can stay out of it. Um, <laughs> As I wish yeah. she would, always. <laughs> Which I can say oh, because at this time in the recording, she is not in the apartment at all. So I can say <laughs> what I want without fear of reprisal. Especially because exactly. she doesn't listen to this episode. Until she finally guilt trips herself into listening to all of our back catalog like three years from now, and then this does come back to haunt me when I don't remember saying it at all. Right, so future Karen, beat Ethan now. (laughs) (laughs) Also future Karen, what else is new? (laughs) And with that, (laughs) schlank. Uh, brostum. talking about the tempest we are talking about talking about the tempest which means we are talking about the sea and the mirror a poem by wh Auden. Um, can you do that pronunciation one more time Auden? huh i think you did it right the first time which i think was the oh. first time this podcast has recorded us doing it right and yes. i was hoping that like you would be able to repeat it and i would be able to internalize it but then you said it the way i said it so oh. Oh. 
Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it's in there somewhere. Um, but yes, this poem from uh, the early 20th century, which is also... It does, does it say criticism? Of, not a criticism, like a... I mean, yeah, li- criticism. literary criticism in the, in the most... Literary criticism of The sense. Tempest. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, from, it's from the 1940s, I believe, 42 to 44. Right. So, uh, early in the sense that it's before the midpoint. Right, which, yeah, that's what I, what I meant. Okay, okay. Sarah had a guy try to schedule an appointment for early afternoon, and by early afternoon, he meant 11 a.m. Well, that's not anything. <laughs> and if you give me his number, I will call him and tell him that, which will be very disconcerting <laughs> for him, I'm sure. It's, just, it's a lie. That's, that's not early that's literally not. That's anyway, like, yeah, that's I mean, not what we're talking about. That's, that's objectively not. Yeah, I know it's not what we're talking about, but I'm so mad I'm... now. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, right. So now that you know, gentle listener, what we're talking about uh, for for this uh, special episode, um, it's The Sea in the Mirror, a poem by W.H. Alden. Did I do it? Did you I did. It? You did. I think you did. Yes. Uh, go read that, please. Gentle please read, it. read it and weep. Yeah, read it and, and weep. like, I I mean that literally. Like, yeah. this is the first. I'm gonna. I'm getting ahead of us, but this is the first work of literary criticism that has ever moved me to tears. <laughs> oh. And it did it both times that I've yeah. read it now, and uh, yep, I, for at yeah. at different points in the reading of it. So that's weird. Anyway, I'm I'm talking over your reading now. So go listen. Nope, go that's go okay. read. Yep. Yep. Read. 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 Are you done reading yet? Can you be done reading yet? We need to talk about this now, please. Alright, we're gonna assume you're done reading it now because we're gonna talk about so, it. So uh, when you edit uh, this, are you gonna just edit the whole? Uh, the the reading music are you gonna edit that over us like whispering read creepily to them yeah probably (laughs) and then you're gonna delete Um, this part where i gave you that idea so it'll just seem like it came uh, out there right no that sounds (laughs) um (laughs) oh good the delete button is way up there on the keyboard (laughs) you have to highlight and it's Yeah. yeah it's the whole thing i do i do understand Anyway, um, so the sea in the mirror is okay. It's it's a poem, yes. and as a poem, it's very interesting. And as literary criticism, it's very interesting. Yes. Um, I honestly like not totally sure where to start. What here's where I want to start. I want to start by saying this poem slash criticism makes me want to read more of Alden's stuff. Yeah. So that I can get more context for this, because I feel like it would illuminate a lot more of this poem sure. for me. Like, like you, you already kind of buried the lead a little bit by saying that this poem made you weep, and it did me as well, because this is intense. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, go we, ahead. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to just kind of shotgun a bunch of things here, and then we can touch on as many of those as you want. Um. Like, he himself considered this a sort of Christian commentary on the Tempest, yes. if I'm not mistaken, um, because he was a relatively recent convert to Christianity, yes. or at least authentic 
conversion, if, as, if you will. Like maybe he was nominally Christian before. I'm not as totally I understand. Sure on the so he was he you know he was British and like a lot of yeah uh, British people in the early 20th century actually touching on the uh, work that this. Um, set of specials is interrupting us talking about uh of human bondage mm-hmm. similar similar mm-hmm. story there um like somerset mom and uh, uh mom's uh character in human bondage um Auden would have been raised sort of by default anglican right so you have this this right. default church uh raising and like a lot of people especially it seems in like the early to mid 20th century who were raised anglican mom sort of never internalized that or owned that as his own and, and Auden. Yes, and I was talking about Auden, even though that sentence <laughs> technically does apply to Maum. Uh having flashbacks to that bad book that I might like now. Um but yeah, Auden Auden, similar story. Uh you know, never internalized that. Uh sort of what what American Christians, the phrase we tend to use is falling away um yeah so he went i think i think out and went very eastern for a while um which is a similar it's interesting it's a similar trajectory to t.s Eliot, who was another mm. um british born and raised poet of this same time period um and both Eliot and uh Auden, i think sort of had a period where they fell away and looked at into sort of eastern religion and then came back very powerfully to anglicanism um uh, Elliot may have become Roman Catholic, actually, but I can't remember. But anyway, very similar trajectories, if not identical. Um, Elliot, of course, yeah. uh, his famous sort of conversion poem was Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. He, mm-hmm. he, it was a long poem that he wrote, more or less as he was converting back to Christianity. Um, and mm-hmm. The Sea and the Mirror may not be that for... Uh, Auden, but it may be the first long work that he completed it's, after converting back to Christianity. Sure, it it's maybe um, putting it into words. Yeah. Um, uh, you to some extent. You, you had said you wanted to read some of Auden's other poems for for context. Yeah. Um. I've I the the copy or the the edition that I read the Sea in the Mirror this time out of is um the complete poems of Auden that I found at a used bookstore mm-hmm. that I was very happy to find. Um, excuse me, and uh, other than some very short, uh, sort of a scattershot of very short Auden poems, um, the only other long poem I have read is the one that immediately precedes it in this volume, which is called For the Time Being, A Christmas Oratorio. Mm. Um, sure. Well, that's, um, in the edition I have, that's referenced a good deal in, like, the end. Okay, sure. And I believe, so, Um, being that it's immediately preceding it, I have to assume, yeah, so the, the, the dating on that one says 41 through 42, and the scene in the mirror is 42 through 44, so presumably there's Mm -hmm. sort of a straight line from that through this one. I think, for the time being, may have been Auden's sort of conversion poem. Is that the one that has um Simeon? Yes. Yes. In it? yeah. It's 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 a poetic um, like it's almost Auden's poetic uh Christmas pageant, but in the sure. in the if you've if you've read this poem now, gentle listener, as of course you have, um it's in the <laughs> extremely sort of challenging and intellectual style that you'd expect from Auden. 
So it's like if you took a children's Christmas po- uh, pageant and had it rewritten by like Oxford Dons. Um, <laughs> so that's that's as I say, sort of the the um, most context I have. Like I've read both of these poems multiple times, and I have read nothing else by Auden, at least other than sure. some very short ones that I don't really count. Um, and I feel like I was actually making a further point with that. Uh, oh, I, I guess it's just to say that nothing, other than stylistically, nothing in mm-hmm. for the time being really sort of illuminates for me. Um, the, the see in the mirror in any way that I get anything out of it that I wouldn't have gotten just from reading the see in the mirror. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think this work. Certainly, presumably, you know, especially if you're an Auden scholar, uh, it would it, illuminate the- thematically and, and, and certain things like that and show you more about what Auden was interested in. But I I sure. think that the sea in the mirror also, I think we do it a disservice if we assume it doesn't stand alone as its own statement. Oh, sure. And I don't mean to imply sure. that by of any course. means. Um, because it does stand alone as kind of an epic. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so, yeah, in, in the context of um, uh, getting back to my shotgun yes. things. I was, I was um, hoping you'd aim that shotgun at me again. Yeah, I will. Um, that's, you know, uh, in, in the context of, of Alden's uh, conversion to Christianity, it's, it, it's we can talk about that a good deal in, in this poem. Um, he also, um, as I understand, did uh, a lot of lectures on Shakespeare, maybe taught some Shakespeare, um, sure. something like that. I'm I'm not totally sure. I haven't read a good deal into his biography, sort of. Yeah, I haven't things, either. But, um, I, I, I would be surprised if what you had just said was not true. Sure. But that's all I can, that's all I can say definitively. So what? Uh, what I'm what I'm noticing with kind of a fusion of, of of those two things, the Christianity and the lecturing on Shakespeare, is this interesting perspective on this poem and thinking of the Tempest in general, or the Tempest specifically, as this fantasy that Shakespeare invented. Um, sure. And then um, Alden kind of takes that and turns it into um, a Christian metaphor in in some ways. Um, or at least like in a a sort of contemplation, he puts it in Christian spheres, which is not totally necessarily foreign to it initially anyway. Um, what I'm saying is he does something fascinating with this that I think, um, the only other place I've really seen it done really well is with C.S. Lewis. Um, sure. In, um, the, the book we read, uh, earlier, Till We Have Faces. Um, Yes. Where it takes something mythological, takes something fantastic um, from maybe outside of a Christian tradition, which I don't want to say Shakespeare is outside of Christian tradition, but it is not like in itself Christian, but then takes it and turns it into uh, a a Christian examination um, of some some of these themes. Um, And it's really, really interesting how he how he does this how how Alden does this specifically um well and then just taking all sorts of other Shakespeare things in my edition I marked a bunch of places where he directly quotes Hamlet 
Um, he does yes. that in in the prologue. <laughs> yeah, I, I I noted a few of them. You probably caught more than I did. Um, well, I I'm certain that I didn't catch all of them. I just caught the ones, or at least several of the ones that were um, Hamlet's own speech, which, as I understand sure. it, he kind of equated um, Hamlet with Prospero to some some degree. Yeah, um, it sounds right. Like he he kind of lumps a bunch of characters in Shakespeare together. Um, Auden did, yeah. and, like, it, thematically. Um, Which is its own sort of set of literary criticisms right, as well. Right, right. Which, it, it's just another aspect of it, like the character studies in Shakespeare being part of the criticism, but then there's these thematic things that go along with it, and, and the, uh, well, and then just putting it all into the context of this Christianity. The, 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 the big part, um, maybe one of the overarching themes of this entire poem is the, the dichotomy of Caliban and Ariel, and it takes that yes. dichotomy and sees those two as opposites, but um, also as two things that need to exist side by side, um, and kind of overturning this paradigm of Caliban versus Ariel. Um, yes. And ultimately, at the end, um, you have Ariel talking to Caliban right before the... Um... No, is there something after Ariel talks to Caliban? I think, isn't that the, you know, that's the postscript. That's the postscript. So that's the, the very yeah. end. Yeah, that is the very end. Okay, that's 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 what I was remembering. Yes. yes. Um, where it's, it, Ariel is kind of saying, you know, we need to, like, I, I love you, Ariel, loves Caliban, is, is kind of the theme. There's this reconciliation that needs to occur between these two to finally um, bring everything back you know, back to this karmic balance <laughs> which um, <laughs> sure. uh, is not actually um, what that but um if, yeah. if uh if possibly even beyond the idea of a karmic balance it's the idea that no karmic balance needs to be achieved in the first place once you recognize that these are two poles of the same right being the same the same beast or the same concept right um, um if we can get it like I, I maybe also buried the lead a little bit on this earlier just by saying um, the, the Gnostic part of your brain. Um, yes. Because I think what, what Auden is accomplishing here with this pointing out this dichotomy that is assumed between Caliban and Ariel, it's it's um, two kind of heresies of Christianity. <laughs> Very oh, yeah. early heresies of Christianity, uh, which are even like a step earlier than Christianity too, because it's, it's kind of the two heresies, um, that, um, were faced by Jesus in the Judaism of his culture with the, the, the materialism of the Sadducees and then the Gnosticism that, um, was even slightly earlier than Christianity, but then became a Christian heresy. Um, sure. so it's, it's that like, Caliban is the materialism and Ariel is the Gnosticism. And if you, oh, sure. That's that's what happens if you take one without the other. If you have Caliban without Ariel, you have materialism. If you have Ariel without Caliban, you have Gnosticism. Sure. Um, that's interesting. But you need them together to have the authentic Christian perspective on things. Um, this is something that's... that, you know, to get super theological about it that, that I've read in, in commentaries about pointing out, um, it's super common in a lot of... Um, American Christianity nowadays to talk a lot about heaven, but not a lot about earth, and mm. that Jesus saved us from our sins, but that's only talking about our souls, but um, 
And so, you know, we're only looking ahead to the, the, the heavenly realm of things. We're not looking at the material realm. But then there's also other uh, um, parts of, of Christianity um, that uh, focus less on the spiritual and say, you stop talking about the spiritual, focus on the now, focus on the material uh, needs of the people now, um, almost to the exclusion of the spiritual. But if you take sure. one without the other, you're not doing it right. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, so, like, it's, I it's think that's something that Alden really keyed into, seeing yeah. this unity of body and spirit. Um, um, that's interesting because uh, something that I noted as I was rereading this poem, because this poem is so dense, and I could oh, read it dense. so many times, and probably, you know, something different would jump out at me about it every single time. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I know, it, sometimes, you know, when I'm when I'm reading through something and I'm trying to, like, power through it or I just want to, like, get to the thing that I'm that I'm more interested in, I'll, like, something will jump out at me, but I won't, like, think about mm-hmm. it. I'll just sort of mark it and just go on and, and think that I'll come back to it later and then not come back to it later. Um, mm-hmm. But it, uh, you talking about this, I was, uh, like, as you were talking about this just now, I was paging through some of the parts where I had done that. And this is in part two, um, the, that's headed the supporting cast, Soto, uh-huh. Soto Vos, Soto Voce. I never know. Soto how Voce to, probably. Uh, yeah. I, I never know, know how to say that. I don't know Italian, that. but. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and which, uh, part two, of course, is, it features several sort of poetic monologues from, from most of the supporting cast, if not all of it, other than Calavan, who gets his own right. extremely long section. But uh, this is in the part, the uh, Alonzo's um, monologue, which is which is even mm-hmm. within the section is one of the longest ones, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And Alonzo, if I'm not mistaken, is the usurping duke... Mm-hmm. whose son goes on to inherit after him, even though right. sort of Prospero corrects things. So um, Alonzo's monologue here, he's is he, mostly sort of, it's like Shakespeare doing the prince, right? It's like Shakespeare <laughs> telling a young man how to uh, run an Italian city-state. Mm-hmm. So one thing, uh, so at the end of a, of a stanza... My my edition doesn't have line numbers, which seems wrong. But um, at the end of a stanza, approximately halfway through this this section, I would say, um, Alonzo says, "Many young princes soon disappear to join all the unjust kings," mm-hmm. um, which is a wonderful just just all by itself, you know, thing about about you enter the realms of power very idealistic and and you know you're Mm going to change things and then as you age and as you compromise um you know you you find yourself turning into one of the unjust kings um right and then the next stanza resumes so if you prosper which i circled (laughs) because that's an obvious yeah prospero pun oh yes definitely um so if you prosper suspect those bright mornings when you whistle with a light heart you are loved. You have never seen the harbor so still, the park so green, et cetera, et cetera. And then this this goes on until at the end of the following stanza, sort of, I think Alonzo concludes the thought that he began. So this is like a two stanza thought almost. 
Um, at the end of each successful day, remember that the fire and the ice are never more than one step away from the temperate city. It is but mm-hmm. a moment to either. Which that, that use of the temperate city is extremely Elizabethan. Uh, the the uh, sure. uh, All of the sort of political philosophy of, of Shakespeare's day was tending towards the actually this idea that you just talked about michael at at some length theologically but but even even sort of politically and um sure. culturally there was this this goal of a balance between opposites the idea that mm-hmm. that um one extreme or the other extreme were both sort of unhelpful and you had to you had to achieve a synthesis mm-hmm. um so it's just interesting that we both sort of tuned in on those uh yeah. those themes. Well, it's it, it's it's at the it, it's at one and the same time the the most basic sort of high school level <laughs> thing to notice, but also one of the most complex things. Like, yes. Did I did I mention is it on this podcast that I mentioned before that my my freshman year of high school English teacher got sick of us all and we were asked to comment on whatever we read that we would always talk about the duality of man <laughs> it is so easy she's like stop of course it's about the duality of man talk about something else <laughs> I don't I don't remember you mentioning that on this show but uh, that's that's very good either way to be honest yep and and it it like it was effective her teaching at that point sure. because I did stop talking about it, but I still remember it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but um, like in this instance, like that that's what this is this whole thing is about, but at the same time it, it, it illuminates something more complex about that fact as well. Like this yeah. duality isn't necessarily just a duality. There's more to it. Um, like just Well that I I, I to, yeah, go ahead. when when I've studied duality, I get really sick of duality Maybe for similar mm-hmm. reasons to your high school English teacher, but it's just sure. you know so easy. Even in like like treatises about how to write fiction, I get sick of duality because everyone tells you like, oh, anything that you posit, posit the opposite and build tension out of that. But yeah, um, the the thing that I've noticed over the years is that duality is really just singularity. Um, mm-hmm. because anything that's a duality is two parts of a whole. And the interesting nice. thing is not necessarily pointing out the duality. Um, pointing out mm-hmm. the duality might be a necessary step, but it, the the really interesting thing is synthesizing that duality and, and seeing what it produces in sort of a, a monistic or a, a, an entire uh, mm-hmm. production, almost. Um, that's That's sure. an interesting... Uh, I'm going to not make this the alchemy podcast, he said, as <laughs> usual, at the beginning of 10 minutes of talking about alchemy. But um, in the use of alchemy as sort of a metaphor for philosophy or for psychology, um, the, 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 the ancient motto of alchemy is separate and combine. So you separate that duality, mm-hmm. but it's only in, in order to synthesize it into something new. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So yeah, I I think well, you're right here that that uh, Auden does uh, posit a set of dualities, but only in order to synthesize them into something. Right, and I think um, it's even more than just a simple duality too, because you know you notice that there 
well in that in that second part there's all the minor characters that are in there yeah and you could uh, and in one sense you could see each of those characters as falling on like a spectrum between caliban and ariel between that sure. reality somewhere you know some are more caliban some are more ariel if, um but it's also more complex than that it's, yeah it's it's a multiplicity if we um, that is part of this whole yes that you know you've got this this whole of like um i I don't know necessarily if Auden would say Prospero is a, a, a representative of, of the whole, or if, or if Shakespeare is, or if he is, <laughs> sure. or if his audience is. Yeah. You know? well, actually, the um, audience sounds the most likely out of that set of choices that you just gave. Yeah. Um, there is a tradition within criticism of The Tempest of seeing all of the characters on the... It's sort of a, a Jungian slash maybe Freudian tradition of criticism mm -hmm. of seeing all of these characters as aspects of prospero's psyche sure where i could definitely see you know, that i i guess it um, is a very freudian thing because one character is the ego and one character is the super ego probably that that right. specifically is is of course ariel and caliban and then you know you have right caliban being the yeah. id and ariel being the super but ego. If, if you were filming that that version you would maybe sort of have a snow globe and then zoom out of the snow globe and it would just be Prospero's head or something. Um, but I, I don't think that's quite what uh, what Auden is going for here. No, not necessarily. Like, maybe it's at the back of his mind, but I don't think it's... I don't think... The primary thing I don't. I, I think um, Auden gives the characters too much um, agency of their own. I don't think he would call right. them... I, I don't... I, I think... They have their own existence. I don't think he would call them parts of Prospero's mind. Right, right. Yeah. Um so something I wanna throw in if you if you don't have anything yeah, go ahead. going to going to go straight to is um that may complicate some of the things that we've been talking about. <laughs> is the persistence of Do it. Throw that thank you. It's the persistence of death in this uh in this poem Ooh. um now starting right with the preface right at the part that would get me in trouble if the rules were in place um <laughs> is there a first paragraph to a poem though? i mean if we were doing the rules i would count it as like the first stanza um but also <laughs> i would argue you out of punishing me if i said the phrase first stanza so take that as you will i guess <laughs> um so, so right, starting right from the beginning. Preface, the stage manager to the critics. The aged, so arguably you have death two words in. The aged yeah. catch their breath. For the nonchalant couple go waltzing across the tightrope as if there were no death or hope of falling down. The wounded cries, the clown doubles his meaning, and oh, how the dear little children laugh when the drums roll and the lovely lady is sawn in half. Um, there are a bunch mm -hmm. of suggestive dualities just in that in that opening stanza. Um, oh, sure. You, you move from... Even two halves of a yeah, lady. Yeah, for, for one thing. But um, zooming out slightly on this snow globe, uh, you, you know, you have... You start with the aged in the opening line and you go to the children by the by the back half of that stanza um mm -hmm. you know you have you have the nonchalant couple waltzing across the tightrope it's usually not a couple that like waltzes together uh right you know and and even the wounded cry is the clown doubles his meaning 
Um, that almost mm-hmm. seems like giving the game away when, if you look at it a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. So there's all that going on. And I was going to say when you, when you were talking talking about the minor characters in uh, in Section 2, um, mm-hmm. that if if we had stopped and done, say, like, four episodes on The Tempest, which, of course, it being a Shakespeare play, we absolutely could if we wanted to. Definitely um, mm-hmm. I I would probably force us to spend one entire episode talking about the mirrors and the dualities between characters in that play. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and sure. this is, you know, a thing in Shakespeare uh, sort of throughout the, the body of work. You know, you have... Um, mm-hmm sort of Hamlet, Laertes, and Fortinbras all have mirrors within that play. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as a pretty direct set of mirrors and, and right. you know, so on and so forth. Uh, so yeah, this this duality is, is certainly there, but there's also that presence of death. And then when you have section one, so that was the preface that I read, and we go into section one, which is Prospero's monologue to Ariel. Start in the fifth line of that, we have Prospero quoting himself, I believe, from the Tempest, saying, briefly Milan, then Earth. As in, I'm going to go mm-hmm. to Milan for a little while, then I'm going to die. Yep. And then a, a, a four lines that I, I underlined, and I just they just destroy me every freaking time. I am glad that I did mm-hmm. not recover my dukedom till I do not want it. I am glad that Miranda mm-hmm. no longer pays me attention. I am glad I have freed you, so at last I can really believe I shall die. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I touched on the alchemy thing, and I, again, don't want to belabor it too much, even though I will definitely do that. But and, and, As long as you pay it fair wages. <laughs> um, you know, alchemy would have been in the air in Shakespeare's day, and Auden would at least have known that. And in the earth and fire and water. Oh, thank... I'm so, Like, you're giving me crap right now, but I'm so happy about the specific quality of crap you're giving me that I will just... I will just eat all of this crap. It's, this is this is top-shelf crap that I'm yes. feeding to you right now. Thank you. This is a family podcast. Um, but, so there, there's... There's an idea, especially in the Christian tradition of alchemy, that would have been the strongest strain coming through into Elizabethan London that Auden would have known about, especially if he was investigating Elizabethan alchemy specifically. Um, Mm -hmm. The strain in Christian alchemy that you were not worthy to create the Philosopher's Stone, this thing that could give you infinite wealth, Mm -hmm. until you were spiritually enlightened enough that the wealth was meaningless to you. Mm-hmm. So this the that's what struck me about this line. I'm glad that I did not recover my dukedom till I do not want it. Um, mm-hmm. But and then and then later, just literally on the same page, um, he's talking about you know burying his books, which again is a direct quote from the from the text of the play. He's he says, "Where I go, words carry no weight. It is best then I surrender their fascinating counsel." To the silent dissolution of the sea. Dissolution, mm-hmm. again, is a very... It's it's a chemistry word, but before that, yep. it's an alchemical word. Alchemical, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and the, that, that concept of, of words having no meaning, too. We already had the preparation of um, Hamlet from the prologue. Uh, yes. 
because right in the prologue he uses Hamlet's last words, which are ironically the rest of silence. Yes. Um, and so just that idea of words ultimately having no meaning, but they have to have meaning, and yes, but it's what is it? It's <laughs> and it's the idea I think of what does what does that fact point to? The fact that mm -hmm. um, to quote the great work of literature uh the avengers all all names are made up all words are made up um <laughs> in a certain sort of nihilistic sense they're all ultimately meaningless and yet what right. do they if if that's true if you take that as true right what do words point to right right and it's yeah it, it's it's just kind of a you you end up having to be cyclical in some sense with that concept um, but the, um, I had a thought here on that with, with the words and, oh, um, the, the death theme yes. also is huge in Hamlet. Oh yeah, um, of course. Uh, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Hamlet's number one preoccupation is with death. And well, so, and Harold Bloom um, calls Hamlet the ambassador of death. Like sure. His, his criticism of that play is, is to say that Hamlet is the one who makes death acceptable to us right and that's that's maybe um part of this this you know getting to his his christian uh conceptions on this poem uh on the play too with um making death acceptable um because the question of death uh does require an examination of both the material and the spiritual um right because death is ultimately the separation of those two yeah, it's it's uh, you know most objectively sort of materialistically speaking, it's the end of the material. Right, right. The well, and the material goes. Well, it's it's the end of the material if you're purely materialistic. Right. If if you have this conception of the duality here of the material and the spiritual, it's that the material is no longer part of the spiritual, and the spiritual is no longer part of the material. They've gone their separate ways. Right. Um, and so that's like um, this 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 couple that's waltzing on the tightrope at the beginning is Caliban and Ariel. I'm convinced. Oh, and um, not a Ferdinand and Miranda. No, not a Ferdinand and Miranda. Like, and except insofar as Ferdinand and Miranda are reflecting that uh, duality of Caliban and Ariel. Um, that it, it's it's the it's the spirit and body that are sure waltzing on this tightrope because they are going to die and death is a reality and in that sense yes Ferd, uh, Ferdinand and Miranda are waltzing on that tightrope because they are in the the swell of youth and and romance and such so no they're not going to pay attention to the the, the imminent fact of death at this point directly which is why the agent in... catch their breath Exactly. Right at the beginning, because, um, because uh, they are prepared for it. Well, and, <laughs> or they are—they are aware of it. Yeah, they're aware of it, and uh, they're aware that these these children, in a very real sense, these people who, in a very yep. real sense, are children, in in fact, several mm -hmm. very real senses, that they're not aware of it, or that they're that right. they're blithely and blatantly ignoring it. Right, right. It, which is like where where Hamlet comes in because he's a youth that does not. Yeah. <laughs> um. He like uh, he he focuses very precisely and, and profoundly on this this reality of death that is going to come, and that's why he's kind of united with Prospero, except Prospero is uh, older, and um, that's part of why he's 
he's aware, uh, keenly aware of the reality right. of death. Um, but, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit with um, the Bill Holm essays, <laughs> sure. uh, too, just like uh, this this uh, hymn singing being the preparation for the last great failure, um, yeah. uh, <laughs> the funeral. Um, and, like, that's, that's something that, that is imminently part of Christianity is being prepared for death. Right. That's, I mean, you could argue that's part of all religions, um, is preparing for death in some way. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure if I had more <laughs> to say on that because there's so much more. To say I mean, do you do you <laughs> get the? So a lot of this points towards ultimately where what I would what I would argue is Auden's um synthesis at the very end of this poem of uh. his literary critic criticism his poetry and his his theological or philosophical or both argument um and yeah. he sort of brings them all together into this idea that there's uh, this idea that that I think is at the back of a lot of criticism, whether good or bad, mm-hmm. whether valid or invalid, um, and it's it you know you could even go into fandoms that are very critical. Um, much as I hate kind sure. of hate the word fandom in some ways, but um, this this idea you know there's there's sort of a cliche that like fans of Doctor Who, for example, um, that each season the real question of of what's going to happen in this season of the tv show is what are fans going to fixate on that they hate and spend all of their time complaining about um and in the end of this this uh monologue that caliban delivers to the audience um that he you know he he sort of describes a very bad sort of community theater production (laughs) of of the tempest or indeed almost any very great play um and he says that in spite of in spite of everything and the the gaffes the description of them does get very comic um and it's very good in that way Mm -hmm. but in spite of all of that there's something beyond it that we're either seeing or trying to see Mm -hmm. that that we're trying to look to some transcendent principle and if it's not here before us and if it's not in whatever text of the play because if it were we wouldn't bother putting on the play then where is it Mm -hmm. and that that you know synthesizes again the literary criticism that he's offering um Mm -hmm. in some ways that we probably haven't even gestured at so far in our our mere 45 minutes on this this piece so far um (laughs) It, it it but it also brings together that that philosophical point that theological point um as well as that that idea of the preparation for death that if if you take hold of any of the many possible indicators that the material is not all that there is then what is beyond that you have you you either have mm-hmm. to say we don't know, which is not particularly satisfying, or you have to try to grasp onto something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, well, which is, you know, the, the next duality of the, the transcendent and the imminent. Yeah. 
it, it, it's almost an ironic sort of thing too that um, I think he it, it's not maybe a even preoccupation with, with the poem but I think it's in there to a degree just the, the the class differences too that is is ironic that the um, the poorer you are the more religious you tend to be uh, yes and yes the, the wealthier you are, the more materialistic you tend to be. Huh, I um, hadn't thought of that uh, that dichotomy, but I I do think there's something there. And and that's that's and and I maybe not necessarily even religious, but like spiritual in the sense of like this duality. Like the the poorer you are, the less material wealth you have, the more you're going to lean towards aerial. Sure. Uh, and the more material wealth you have, the more you're going to lean towards Taliban. Um, Which is interesting. A in that uh, uh, Auden himself is is very much an Anglican writer, um, yeah. And you know the the Episcopal Church, the the sort of Anglican communion yep. in America tend to be wealthier, um, and I right. don't know if that's true as much in England, though I suspect it is. And that the the dissenters, sure. as as referenced in, for example, of human mm-hmm. bondage, tend to be tend to be poorer. Um, Mm-hmm. But yeah, those those who are wealthier might have some vested interest in various senses of those words in materialism, in the idea that the material is all we have, um, and right. and the uh, the poorer might have some vested interest in uh, sort of the, the opposite of that. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the idea that that they've suffered in this life for a reward in the next life. Um, mm-hmm. and in light of that, it's interesting to me that it is Caliban who spends probably statistically word count wise speaking, spends the bulk of this poem addressing mostly the audience and right, mostly the he, audience who presumably have bought their tickets to this play. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Mostly <laughs> he calls them out as being the sort of people who can afford to, uh, uh, buy tickets to this play which i think is a little bit of a genius move on Auden part um because they're the ones who are going to listen to caliban yeah but it's i don't know it, it's it's again a duality but then there's a spectrum and it's more than just a spectrum too it's it's a multifaceted figure um yeah that's involved here and so it's 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 funny because reading this poem caliban uh-huh. puts words in your mouth the audience right. mouth, the reader of this poem's mouth um and as, even more as, words for those of us who might want to be uh, uh writers of some kind right uh <laughs> um and that's that's always just a fun move when when a a, a writer does that to you sure but the the knee-jerk reaction when a piece of work does that puts words in your mouth as the reader is to say that's not me you automatically distance yourself from that yeah like those 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 words aren't put into my mouth those words are put into that guy's mouth into into Uh, the audience's mouth of which the audience who becomes a character then distance from yourself yeah you like i i honestly um can't think of a single instance in which uh, a work of fiction has successfully made the reader a character because anytime the reader is made into a character, the reader sees that as a character and not as a reader. Sure. 
Um, it's, you know, a, a, a baby looking in a mirror. There's no self-awareness there. <laughs> that's, that's something else. Well, that's, um, that's maybe an instinctive reaction, but... Yeah, to... it, and I think it's a defense mechanism, too. Yeah, yeah, especially um, especially when it says uh, potentially... Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, potentially, I don't know, to, to use modern internet lingo, potentially as I feel attacked, as uh, this yep. this one might tend to be. Mm-hmm. But if, if you feel attacked then your inst- instinct is going to be to um, reject the work. Right. Um, or to argue against it. If you like the work, though, you're not going to allow your allow yourself to be attacked by it, and so you're going to deflect it. So you think the instinct is to essentially is to deflect either way. Right, in some way. Sure. Um, either back at the author or off to the side. Sure. And just turn it into something you can observe, rather than taking it to heart. It takes a little more self-examination to do that. And I don't know if I can even claim that I accomplished that now that I'm, you know, examining this a step back as well. I, I don't I don't know that I necessarily took any of Caliban's accusations to heart. Um, See, I don't um, know. I think I think I did. Okay. Um, I think partly partly that is especially in the the section where he was talking about, all right, those of you who want to be writers here's what i have to say to you Um, which is partly because i'm always just searching for especially from very brilliant authors and Mm -hmm. double especially from very very brilliant authors who are dead who there's no Mm -hmm. chance i will ever run into them at a convention or be able to have an email or a tweet answered by them you know i'm always looking for this sort of thing uh uh, mark twain's essay how to tell a story was one of like the formative uh, works I read both on my writing and on my acting, weirdly. Nice. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so like some of that I definitely took to heart, but I definitely had the experience, um, and I don't know if this is what you're driving at or not, but like I had the Mm. experience of, oh, okay, he's addressing the audience. That's fine. Uh, but then he would say a certain thing that I found jarring, and then I would sure. consciously have to say, wait a second, he's saying that to me, um, and the experience mm-hmm. is that I found it even more jarring. <laughs> good, um, good. Well, then he accomplished his purpose, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. And there, Did I, you I have a point like you were just, driving at that I interrupted? Not necessarily. Or? Like I'm just spouting off all the things that are occurring to me because this poem is mind-boggling and earth-shattering. And yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's 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 something else. Had you um, had you read it before reading it for this recording? Yes, this is the second time I read it. Okay, so same here. So, yep. And the first time I read it, I read it without making any notes or anything. Sure. Um, I just kind of read it and let it wash over me. Sure. Um, and I, I'm, I'm glad I did it that way. Uh, right. Because then I could just, you know, get the whole experience and then analyze it again a second time. Right. A little more deeply. Um, but it, it, I don't know. It's, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's, there's more I, to say about it than that, but I mean, I I know that the at least our good listeners have uh-huh. 
already re read The Tempest and read this poem because we gave right. them chances to do both of those things in these two episodes. Mm -hmm. um, but to anyone who by any chance hasn't, I would pitch do both of those things because The Tempest is Shakespeare's shortest mm -hmm. play and oh, this yeah. poem is only 50 pages long. You can read through both of them in an afternoon, right. which means, and this is, this is sort of me uh, inducting you slowly into my call, um, laying out the easy yeah. thing first and then saying, which means you can do that seven times inside of a week. Right. Just, just spend an entire week each day, read the Tempest and read this poem. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I have the authority to tell you to do that as someone who has only done each thing. Tw well, no, I've read the Tempest way more than twice, but right. I've only read this poem twice, but I'm still telling you to do this because <laughs> I suspect to the point of being able to guarantee that you will mm -hmm. get new things out of both of those each time that you do it. Well, and you got to do it back to back, I'd argue. Yeah, yeah. Like, that that was an interesting thing actually um the first time i read this poem i had read the i had read the tempest in like the preceding several months sure um but this was the first time i've read the tempest and then gone straight into reading see in the mirror yep um and that was it it i would argue so much so much better of an experience there's plenty you can get out yep. of see in the mirror without having read the without having read the tempest for sure and also, even more surely, without, without having, having read, it recently. read it recently, but the two of them together is just, like, it, sometimes, including during this podcast, I forgot that I was not quoting Shakespeare when I was quoting lines from The Sea of the Mirror. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. And I don't um, think that's a coincidence or just me being idiotic. No. It's definitely me being idiotic, but not just that. Well, it's 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 always you being idiotic, but um, <laughs> thank you. I I think you you've managed despite your idiocy. Um, well, the word is idiocy, but Dudley, <laughs> Dudley knew it. No, no, I turned it into a journey for you too. <laughs> idiotic. Very good. <laughs> I'm glad I accomplished a spit take on that one. Almost, oh. not quite, but almost. <laughs> almost, definitely almost. almost. Um, but I think you're managing to kind of segue us naturally into ratings at this point. Sure. Also, um, I would which, like it noted that I just quoted Dudley Do-Right the Mountie from Rocky and Bullwinkle, <laughs> who at one point discovers gold in the uh, uh, Canadian Rockies or whatever and runs back into his into the Mountie uh, fort yelling, Why Rika, why Rika, I've found it. And the <laughs> narrator says, well, the word was Eureka, but Dudley knew what he meant. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite things to quote, but I have to explain it every time because no one knows about it. I love it. Okay, anyway. anyway please, um, please, let's do ratings now that I've destroyed our segue. Ratings. Yeah, Ethan, rate your drink. Oh! Wait. One to five stars. Thank you. Um, I give it, I give it a solid four. Oh, nice. Um, it's like the pat patio pounder of extremely complex tiki cocktails that take ten minutes to make. Um, mm -hmm. it's it's a uh, yeah, it's good. It's it's not mind blowing, but you know, if I had the stuff to make it and no other ideas, I would be utterly happy drinking it all afternoon. So, sure, Michael, rate your drink. I'm gonna give it. Well, hold on. I'm gonna preface this by saying there's this weird phenomenon that always happens. Um, 
when because I, I I love coffee. Okay. And I love rum and other like whiskey things. Well, rum and, and whiskey are two different spirits, but go on. Wh- whiskey like things, dark alcohol. I know. Okay. I didn't know what you mean. I was just being a jerk. Thank you. So like I love these two things. Yes. And so I always think. It, like when I see these things on a menu, that you know, a combination of the two is going to be great. Oh, sure, like an and Irish whiskey this... or exactly, whatever. Yeah. exactly. And then there's this weird thing that every I time meant an Irish I... coffee, but go on. Yeah, I know what you meant. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dudley. There's this weird phenomenon that happens that you know, I I, I see this thing, this combination of the caffeine and the alcohol, yeah, and I think it's going to be great. And then I order it, or I start preparing it, and then there's this sinking feeling that I'm like, no, this is not going to be good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it always happens. Okay. So, here's 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 how I'm going to rate this. This is a three. Okay. I'm going to give it a three stars. It's right in the middle because it, uh, it, it didn't live up to my initial expectations that this is going to be the best thing ever. Okay. Nor did it fail as far as my secondary expectations of this is going to be horrible. Oh, okay. So definitely <laughs> um, not the worst outcome. Not the worst. In fact, this was actually really good. As far as the mixture of, of alcohol and caffeine goes, this is maybe one of my favorite ways to do okay. it. Okay. Um, besides maybe just, you know, the Baileys and coffee mixture, which is situational. Well, and um, that's just basically creamer that's a little mean to you, so. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, yeah, um, but no, this this is this is rather delightful. Um, sure. It wouldn't be necessarily a go-to drink for me. It again, I think, might be something situational. Sure. Um, I I would have to be in the right mood for this, but again, it's going to be tricky to know exactly what mood that is because I know even like two nights from now, I'm going to be thinking, hey, you know that caffeine and alcohol mixture that I had? That's going to be really good. But no. <laughs> I don't want that right now. I only think I do. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so three stars. Okay, very good. <laughs> I was going to say, to me, the caffeine and alcohol mixture specifically is like, you. It, it has to be in exactly the right circumstance. Like, I don't think I'd yeah. want to drink it as my last drink before going to bed or going home for the night. Definitely not. Like, maybe if it was like a snowy afternoon or something, I'd do like... And Irish mm-hmm. coffee with, like, whiskey and Baileys or something. But... Like, it almost has to be the only drink. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have. Yeah. And it has to be early enough in the evening. Yeah. Anyway. Good. Read the book. I mean, <laughs> this is going to shock everyone, but I'm going to say buy it. <laughs> buy it in any format you can. Buy Auden's yeah. Collected Poems. Buy everything. Buy the Earth. That's my that's my recommendation. <laughs> buy the Earth. I mean... Can I add to that except to say also buy the ether? Yes, thank um, you. <laughs> uh, yeah, buy it. This 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 deserves to be bought and and read and loved and cherished and wept over. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Um, all right, rate the pairing, Ethan. Um, I would say it was quite good. The the whole rummy citrusy tropical thing and the, but you know those there's some dark rums in mine that that lend that sort of downward pull towards death. Um, mm. yeah, it was good. It was, uh, All right, well, uh, what there's, what's one step below perfect match, I'll say. Uh, pretty good match. Pretty good. We'll call it pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say mine's a pretty good match. 
um, sure. also. Uh, whereas yours pulled you down to the earth, mine was elevating me to the heavens. Uh, <laughs> until it pulls you down to the earth until for it pulls a while down. here. Well, see, it, it's dividing me. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is perfect. Uh, but yes, no, very, very good. Uh, it had nice, cool. like, I think the, the coffee as well as the, the cardamom really kind of pulled out some of the the, the saltiness in the rum. Okay. Cool. Um, made it very what rum did you use, did we say? Oh, hold on. Let me let me get the bottle because it's a good okay. one. Good. This is good audio entertainment right here, folks. Michael walking away, showing me his bottle. Don't worry, I haven't been narrating this whole time. That's oh, that's you. not something I would do. Um, the the rum I used is called the Real McCoy. Oh, okay. Single blended rum, aged five years. Yeah. Does it have a a specific geographical origin? Um, it might not. Traditional not Barbados do. rum, but that's all. Okay, Barbados. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there it is, Barbados. Saint yeah, Philip yeah, Barbados. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Barbados rums tend to, as I understand, have a little bit more of that like all spicy, nutmeggy kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more funky is sometimes the word that gets used kind of sure. flavor to it. So yeah. that makes sense. That sounds that actually sounds super good. It is very very good. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's my rating. Pretty good match. Good. Yeah. Next time, gentle listener, we're going to be continuing our discussion of of human bondage Ugh. by Somerset Maugham. Uh, Ethan's looking forward to that. I know. I am. <laughs> uh, I hope you are too. So read along, <laughs> give us your feedback in the contact section of the Tapestry Radio website. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Scotch uh, or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. If you request to join, we'll let you in unless you are Caliban or Ariel. Uh, but if you're together, uh, we'll definitely let you in. Um, you're walking that tightrope like lovers or however yep. the line waltzing it three times goes. Um, we'll also do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, uh, but we'll do it in a funny way and we condone plagiarism uh, because we want you to fail. Uh, yes. <laughs> so yes, go to our website tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Uh, fill out the form on that page. We'll make it fun, hopefully. Um, if you like this podcast, check out other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. Uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, we don't pay to advertise, so that's, besides word of mouth, the best way other people can learn about us and uh, start listening. Uh, otherwise, do tell your friends. And Ethan, where can they find you? I am at Bjartlet on Twitter. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Um, also check out my webcomic, Pinporter Girl Detective. And that's pinporterdetective.com, I believe. Um, otherwise, Google Pinporter Girl Detective, that'll get you there. It's very good. The art is very good, and also, I write words for it. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L, um, so you can find me there, tweeting about things, and doing the Twitter stuff. Yeah, like all the, all the youth do, all like the, all those, all, all those the kids. young persons. Uh, yeah, that's, that's. That's the tightrope that I'm waltzing. Uh, <laughs> Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so with that, gentle listener, just remember, 
it's our party and we'll cry because we read this poem. <laughs> Excellent. Back. looking at your beautiful face and not my <laughs> thing so and as my dad always used to say venereal disease is nothing to clap about <sighs> your dad wouldn't say that <laughs> Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.